we begin. Good morning, everyone. How are you? As we begin this morning, I just want to let everybody know that Gwendolyn Casanova up here is starting trouble, and she's a troublemaker. So I just want to put that on the recording for everybody who hears it out there in the world. Gwen is a troublemaker, but thank you for being here. Okay, Gwen? <laughs> Anything else you want to say? <laughs> well, next week we will conclude this series. And I think the reason we're concluding is because, not that I don't want to go further, but there is no conclusion to this series because this is how God works and continues to work. So some way, some way we have to stop it. And what I'm hoping is that in this, the Holy Spirit huh, has been, if you would, upgrading our understanding and appreciation of the continuity and the comprehensiveness of his word. I'm hoping that as a result of you having been in here during these, this is week number 25, I think, during these weeks, that God has given us a much broader understanding and appreciation of his word. So that when we read whatever it is that we're reading, if we're studying Ephesians, if we're studying uh, Nehemiah, if we're studying whatever it is and wherever it is, we never again read, study, look, meditate upon any portion of the Word of God in and of itself, but within the context of the entire purpose of God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So allow yourself to be looking at the Word and re receiving from God a revelation, an understanding that whatever portion of Scripture you're reading, whatever it is and wherever it is, absolutely every portion of Scripture has to do within the context of Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation 22. And allow the Holy Spirit, as you're reading a portion of Scripture, to let, to, to allow your mind to collect to gather up all that God is doing and to see in that one portion what God has promised and prophesied and in that one portion what God is fulfilling. Okay? That's a burden for me. I want us to see that because we need, I need more and more to grow up and mature in the Word of God because as we do, our roots, our roots or being more and more put into the rock of our salvation so that when the enemy of our soul comes against us, we will be able to stand. Amen? And so when Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church, we're going to see that happening in our own lives. As Satan attacks, and we're going to stand strong because we know the word well enough. So thank you for being here so much and so consistently this morning. Last week, remember, we looked at some of the qualifications of Jesus. How could he be and what causes him to be qualified to be these three issues? And we're just talking about three, the other issues, but I'm just trying to grab a hold of the three main ones. And, and one of the main ones I didn't even take out yet, and I'm not going to develop it, is the priesthood. But again, we don't have time to do it all, but at least the seed of the woman, the last Adam, and the Davidic king. And so this morning what we're going to do is look at some of the ways in which Jesus is a fulfillment of being the last Adam. 
the Davidic king and the seed of the woman. Because what we want to do today is not only to see that Jesus is announced that way. You remember in Matthew, he was announced that way. For you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from the sin. Remember we talked about Yah, I am. Remember all that last week, just a little bit of touching on some things. And so this morning we want to see exactly some of the highlights, very tippy-toe through it quickly highlights of how Jesus fulfills this. So when you look at your word, especially in the New Testament, and you look at the Gospels, and then you look at Acts, and then you look at the epistles, you know, from Romans all the way through to Jude, and then you look at Revelation, you can begin to see, look at how this is being fulfilled. Look at how this man and his ministry the incarnational ministry while he was on earth, and now the eternal ministry of Jesus in the heavens, how this ministry is bringing about the fulfillment of Genesis 1 and 2 as God's image. So let's get going. And allow me to go through this pretty quickly because I want to try to get it all done and then maybe petition the elders to allow me to begin to teach and do this five hours every Sunday morning. But uh, (laughs) whatever. Oh, boy, look. So first of all, Jesus... How does Jesus fulfill the last Adam? You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Paul says this, the first man, and by the word, the word man in Hebrew is Adam, A-D-A-M. And so the word Adam literally is the Hebrew for man. And so it becomes a personalization, you know, a, a name. But when we see it, Adam means just man or mankind. It doesn't mean man as a sexual male. It means mankind. It means people. The first Adam, the first man rather, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Paul immediately says there are two Adams upon the earth. There have been two Adams upon the earth. There was the first Adam which we see beginning in Genesis 1.26, let us make man. And we see that the creation of Adam himself is specified, remember, in Genesis 2.7, as the Lord says, hey, let us make this man, and we put him to sleep. It's not good for him to be alone and whatever, and he begins to create Adam, and, and we move along. So in what ways does Jesus fulfill God's purpose in the first Adam? How is Jesus the fulfillment, and if you would, the personification of the first Adam? What about the first Adam that failed is succeeded, if you would, in Jesus, the last Adam? Well, first of all, Adam was God's created son. Remember, it says this, God created Adam in his own image in Genesis 1.27. So Adam is a created being. Adam is a created being. But remember in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, Luke is giving the genealogy the genealogy of Jesus, and he's going backward. And finally, he comes to this. He says, Adam, the son of God. And so Adam is a created being, a created man, but he's also called a son of God. That's the first distinction. Because with Jesus, Jesus is God's, I'm sorry, Adam is God's created son, but Jesus is God's son, is God's personal uncreated, eternal son. So there would be the distinction. Adam being the created son of God, not son in the same way that Jesus is, but son in relational things, and Jesus is the son of God. 
So remember this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 3, 16, all of you have heard this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, if you looked in the Greek, only begotten is monogenous. Mono means what? One. Genus means what? The, the, the very basics of our life. You know, your genes. Remember the gene pool. And so what that means is that Jesus is of the same, if you would, gene pool as God. Can we say it that way? Jesus has God's genes. Jesus, the Son, God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit all share the same genes. They are all of the same substance and nature and essence. And so when John 3.16 says, my beloved son, you know, God's only begotten son. It has nothing to do with a beginning time. It has everything to do with the essence of his being, being the same essence of God. So that would be, first of all, the most vital distinction between the two. Adam is created. Jesus is uncreated. You remember, God also testifies to this uncreativeness of Jesus, this monogenous of Jesus. And he says in Matthew 3.17 and also in 17.5, remember the transfiguration, he refers to Jesus as my beloved son. Now, where does the word beloved come in? Remember, we saw that the other day from the Old Testament. My beloved son, 2 Samuel 12.25. If you don't have that in your notes, Write it down. Remember, Solomon is born, and David and Bathsheba call his name what? Solomon from the word shalom, peace. Peace. But God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And in verse 25, 2 Samuel 12, the Lord says, call him, but I call him what? Jedidiah. Remember? Jedidiah. Yah. Beloved of Yah. Remember, Y-J-A or Y-A is the name of God. Yah, I am. Tell them that Yah, 314 of Exodus. Tell them that Yah, I am, hath sent you. So Jedediah, beloved of Yah. And so Solomon is a representation, you remember, of the beloved of the Father. And so when Jesus is born, conceived, and he has the public ministry beginning in Matthew chapter 3 and really ending in Matthew 17 before he goes to the cross. At the beginning of the ministry and at the end of the ministry, if you would, not the very end, but you know, the beginning of the conclusion of it, the Father says, this is my Jedediah, this is my beloved Son. So he testifies twice. It's recorded also in Luke. You remember these others are recorded in Luke, but these are the two testimonies of God himself. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to God's Son 42 different times. So that would be the first and most significant way that Adam and Jesus relate to one another in a sense, but are so different from one another. Who Adam was to be, Jesus is. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds, if you would. So the second thing, Adam was created in God's image. What verse tells you that? Genesis 1, 26. Let us make 
Adam, man, let us make Adam in our image after our likeness. You remember that. So Adam is God's created son to be an image bearer, to be one who contains, who is clothed with the image of God, who represents God, not completely because he's a created being, and no created being can ever fully represent God. That's what's wrong, at least partially, with Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jesus of Jehovah's Witness cannot be the representation of God the way God desires it to be, nor can he fulfill the purpose of God because he is a created being. This is a Jehovah's Witness theology. It's the old Aryan controversy that goes back, you know, to the, like, I think it's, what is it, the third century or something. So Adam is created. But the difference is that Jesus is God's image. Now there's the distinction. Adam is created to be in God's image. Jesus is God's very image. Because Jesus is God's monogenous. When you see this man, when you hear this man, you are seeing and hearing the very, if you would, genes of God himself. He is God's living image in man, which is the testimony of many New Testament uh, passages. Listen to this, Hebrews 1.3. Jesus, he, is the exact image. Now, I will put the word image because some of your Bibles change the word from likeness to image or other words. I'm going to use the word image. Why? Because the Greek word there is icon. The Greek word for that word is icon. Do you have that in your, uh, in your notes? You may not. E-I-C-O-N. How many of you have heard of icons? Those are what? The icons or images, right? You remember in many of the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox churches, the Greek Orthodox church, the Russian Orthodox church especially, they will have icons or, if you would, images on, it looks like big just drawings and photographs or whatever, and they will march through the streets with these images and people will revere these images. I remember one time we were in Irkutsk and here comes down the street, it's like a parade. And the priests are coming, and the altar boys are coming, and all of them, are, you know, have their, uh, their robes on or whatever, and they're carrying these icons, icons of the saints and icons of whoever, you know, revered people in their, in their history and their culture. And people are literally venerating these icons, these images. Jesus is God's image. Remember what Jesus tells Philip? Philip says, look, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And what does Jesus say? Philip, have I been with you all this time and you say, show us the Father? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In fact, in the first chapter of Colossians, or the first two and a half chapters of Colossians, it might be well for you to read and to ponder and to think and to write down all the things that Paul talks about when he talks about Jesus. Why? Because he's combating theologies and mythologies in Colossae. And so the way to battle these things is to show who Jesus Christ really is. And so in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. 
in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, you may remember this. Paul is talking about, uh, well, you'll see it. And he says, in their case, in the minds of the unbelieving and those who don't believe, in their case, the God of this world, who is the God of this world? Satan is called the God of this world. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. What's wrong with unbelievers today? Here's what's wrong with them. The eyes of their minds have been blinded. Why? In order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And that's what's wrong with the unbelieving world now. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're whatever. That the God of this world has blinded their minds. So in Ephesians, what does Paul talk about? He says that the minds of your heart, you know, your heart, your eyes of the soul, the heart may be enlightened that you may be able to see. So Jesus is the image of God. Adam, the created son, Jesus, the uncreated son. Adam, the created in God's image, Jesus comes and he is, in fact, God's image. The next Adam is God's disobedient son. Adam is created to be obedient. You remember the mandate of obedience that was given to Adam? Remember in Genesis chapter 2, verses what? 16 and 17. Remember all these trees? You may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, what? You may not eat. Don't eat of that particular tree. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. And so there is the issue of obedience. Adam, the created son of God, to be in the image of God, is put on the earth and is given the mandate that in order to image God, you must be obedient. And he's given this probation period. And Adam fails. Remember in Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. So Adam begins innocently without any problems whatsoever in the world. He doesn't have a family problem. His, not his in-laws and his ex-laws. It's not the government. You know, it's not the weather that did this. It's not the you know, whatever. It's just something. It's the mystery of iniquity. We don't know what it is. But it shows that even in innocent flesh, even innocent flesh cannot serve God without disobeying. An innocent man cannot do it. Now, what does that say for each one of us? Because how many of us have thought this, and I've said this before, how many of us have actually thought this? You know, Adam disobeyed, but had I been there, come on, am I the only ones ever thought that? Thank you, Tony. I think you and I are the only weird ones in the class. The rest are not admitting to it, you see. Had I been there, it's unfair. Why should I be condemned as a sinner? It wasn't my fault. Ray, it, Adam did this, but Ray, had you been there, you'd have done it. Had I been there, I'd have done it. Had Mary been there, she'd have done it. Yeah, we would all have done what Adam did because Adam was the essence of mankind. And what he did, all of us would have done. And so we were all condemned in his act. Why? Because every one of us would have done the same thing. He was God's disobedient son. But what about Jesus? Jesus is God's obedient son. Remember in John 8, 29, Jesus says this, part of the verse here, he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to God. Jesus is God's consistent, perfectly obedient son, never failing in one issue of obedience with God. 
He keeps all of God's will. I just kind of give you several verses here, and you can look them up on your own. And this is just a, a couple that are scattering out throughout the New Testament. Jesus does all of God's will. Adam faced, as Adam faced the serpent in the garden, remember that in loss because of his disobedience, Jesus faced Satan in the wilderness and won. Adam's disobedience put us in the wilderness, and Jesus' obedience is taking us out of the wilderness and putting us back into God's garden. So you see the difference there. Luke 4, 1 and 2, when Jesus faced the enemy, as Adam did, what Adam faced in the garden is what Jesus faces in the wilderness. In Luke 1 and 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, he has been baptized and he's been sent out. Full of the Holy Spirit. Returned from the Jordan. And remember, the Jordan where John has baptized him and has, was led into the, by the Spirit. In fact, Mark says, was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil... And you remember this, what was the result? In every case, he overcame the devil's temptation. In every case, he overcame the devil's temptation. So what Adam lost through his disobedience, Jesus regains through his obedience. We see that in Romans 5, 12. In one man, sin entered the world, remember, and all have sinned. But in another man, because of his obedience, righteousness now is given to us. So what are the ways Adam is God's created son, created to be in the image of God, created to obey, but he didn't. Jesus is God's uncreated son. He is God's son. He is God's image. And he does fulfill the Father's will by completely obeying God's will. On page 89, I just moved a couple of things around a little bit. On page 89, you'll see these two issues on page 89 in your notes, and then we'll go back to where we were. Adam was to be God's priest. Remember, we touched upon this in the beginning. He was to be God's priest, tending to and maintaining God's garden. You remember in Genesis 2.15, the word says, The Lord took the man, or Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Those two words, work, which is the Hebrew abad, and keep is the word shema. Those two words are the same words in Numbers 3, 7 and 8, which are told to the Levites of tending to the temp a tabernacle. They are to work and to keep the tabernacle. They are to keep the tabernacle and work it. Keep it, what does that mean? It means to keep it clean. It means to keep it from outside pollution. Remember when Jesus enters the temple, and what does he do? He makes a cord of ropes, and he goes through the temple, whipping back and forth and turning over carts and back. What is he doing there? He is God's priest who is doing what Adam should have done. He is cleaning God's temple. He's protecting it. He's working it. He's ministering to the purpose and the glory and maintaining the integrity of God. So Adam was to be this way. Adam's purpose and Adam's function as a priest was not only to obey God in the ministry of the things of God as a priest in the temple or Eden, but he was also to keep the garden protected from anything outside the garden. Because you remember, the Garden of Eden was 
on the earth, in the earth, and outside the garden. We don't know exactly what that looked like and what that means, but we know that outside was disorder. And so the Lord says, I want you to do this, and I want you to begin to spread the good and the control and the rule of God and the order of God and the presence of God throughout the world so that in one day, at one day, once you've accomplished this, the entire world will be under the rule and monarchy and control and order of God. God just did it this way. That means that anything outside the garden was not supposed to come into the garden. Do you get this? Do we see that? And what happens? The serpent comes into the garden. What should Adam have done as a priest? He should have kicked it out. He should have kicked it out. He had God's authority to do that. Yet he allowed the serpent to come in and to converse with his wife, which brought down the whole thing when he sinned in an agreement with the serpent's test, uh, 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 what do you call it? temptation. He was supposed to keep the temple clean. This is what Jesus does. He maintains and protects the work of of God in his own life through absolute obedience by doing what God wants him to do and he will do that in us as we obey him. So this is the same terminology as I said used in Numbers 3, 7 and 8. This is what Adam should have done. But Jesus as the Son of God, as the exact image of God, as the obedient Son fulfills Adam's priestly duties by working and keeping God's temple. Jesus fulfills this priestly issue. Now I have on there, do you have in your notes all the references of, in Hebrews especially about Jesus being the priest? And when you read that, read these references and you're going to begin to see that every time it refers to Jesus as a priest, this is what Adam should have been except in dying for the sin of the people, whatever. Except for the atoning issues of the priest, Adam was to be God's obedient priest. And because he fails, we see the priesthood raised up, remember, in Exodus with Aaron. Remember Aaron being the high priest. And we see the act activity of the priesthood over the years in the high priest family of Aaron and then the Levites ministering in the tabernacle. All of that has reference to what Adam should have done, but God creates this priesthood in order to maintain and move his testimony along. Remember the altar, then the tabernacle, and then the temple and then, of course, Jesus comes as God's holy high priest himself. So all of that priest function in the Old Testament is typifying and waiting for its fulfillment in one man who in himself completely fulfills all the sacrifices and all the activities and the requirements, all the work and the keeping of the priesthood of the Old Testament. Now, that's something about Adam, the second one. Jesus is the Davidic king, the king who will be like David. Adam was to have, you remember, dominion over God's creation. As I said, protecting it from that which was outside as he expanded the garden into the world through his obedient service. Remember dominion. Where is that found? In Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and what? Rule and have dominion. Remember that? Rule and have dominion. God's purpose for man was that God's rule, God's authority, God's kingship, God's majesty, all there is about this sovereign and holy God of ours, this creator, 
All of that was to be seen and demonstrated and functioning in Adam, in a man. Can you imagine that God is desirous of sharing who he is and how he is with us so that through us the creation can see something about him? I mean, to me, that's a totally amazing and awesome issue. In fact, it's the only religion that has this because all the others would tell you God and man would never, uh, you know, cohabitate or whatever. So in the Quran, you know, you see that the Allah is never even coming close to the pollution of fallen man. But God, if you would, wraps himself with our humanity in Christ. And not only wraps himself with our humanity, but literally takes upon himself in Christ our degradation, our sin, our filth, so that he experiences this and takes it to the cross and pays absolutely the full, final, and forever price of the wrath of God for our sin. God does this. This is absolutely antithetical to any and every religion on the face of the earth. Never let somebody say that the religions are just different in some of the issues. This is the truth. All the others are absolute, complete lies. And be gentle and nice and firm about this and smile a lot when you're sharing this with others. But let's see what's really going on here. And so Adam was to have dominion. But what happened? The serpent came in. He did not exercise his dominion authority over serpent or Satan. He didn't do this. He allowed the serpent to come in. And in coming in, the serpent gained dominion over Adam. And the serpent became the god of this world. He overcame Adam, who was to be god of this world as a vice regent of God. And in Adam's disobedience, you see, the enemy became the god of this world. And so because Adam lost his ability because of sin to fulfill the dominion mandate, God promised from Genesis 3, 15, all the way through, he promised to send another who would fulfill the mandate. He promised another. There's coming a king. There's coming one who will fulfill my mandate. He will fulfill the priestly duties, and he will fulfill this kingly duty. And he will be my prophet who will take my name and my word to the nations. <clears throat> so as Adam was to be the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus comes and is God's prophet, is God's priest, and is God's king. He fulfills all of those mandates and uh, um, ministries that Adam was to fulfill. As prefiguring that king, remember when the Lord met with David, and he had Samuel anoint David. Remember that? Pouring the anointing oil on David. Remember 1 Samuel 16? He pours the anointing oil. And the word anointing, remember, has to do with uh, Messias or Messiah. He is messiring David. He's calling David his special person to rule his people, the one who will take and control and dom uh, rather rule the nation and don't have dominion over the nation and rule the nation and protect it and expand it, at least within certain categories. And in that, he was picturing the one who would come. And remember this promise in 2 Samuel. Oh, I have only one Samuel here. 2 Samuel 7, 12. And the Lord says to David, I'm, I will raise up your offspring, your seed, 
remember offspring, seed, after you, who shall come from your body. Remember Matthew 1.1, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of this kingdom forever. So we have that covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. And he promises, David, you're the king today, but you're a type of him who will come to be my king in fullness, who will exercise dominion in my name over all the earth forever, the way I want it to be done to show my majesty. So this promise is seen to be fulfilled in Matthew. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew more than any of the others pounds and pounds and pounds this. The king is here. The kingdom of God has arrived. This is the emphasis of Matthew more than the other, four go- of other three gospels. It is his unique emphasis that God gives him. The king has arrived, and with the king's arrival, the kingdom of God is being inaugurated. In other words, the dominion mandate of Genesis 1.28 given to Adam is now being fulfilled for the first time the way God wants it to be fulfilled. That every other king that Israel had was just a type of fulfillment that failed at some point because of sin. But when this man comes, his rule, his dominion, his kingship, his leadership will never fail because he's God's son. Because he's God's image. Because he's God's obedient man. And so the promise is seen to be fulfilled in Matthew, who begins by announcing that Jesus is the promised Davidic king. Remember right in the beginning, he says this, the book of the genealogy of of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Immediately by saying the son of David, the son of Adam, I mean Abraham, immediately connects Jesus' birth with being in line with the Davidic king, the fulfillment of the Davidic king. Matthew shows that Jesus' birth signals the arrival of the new David whose presence and ministry inaugurates, begins the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as a fulfillment of the dominion mandate of Genesis 1.28. And so you will see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven over and over and over again in Matthew. You'll see it in the other Gospels, but not nearly as much as Matthew. And every time you see the kingdom, the word kingdom, What are the first four words, letters, K-I-N-G? What does king mean? One who has dominion or rule. And what is that referring to? It's referring to the fulfillment of what God had had for Adam in the beginning and now is being fulfilled in the birth of this one and in his ministry. You begin to see that. So every time you see in Matthew or whatever uh, book of the New Testament you're reading, the kingdom of God, the kingdom has arrived for the sake of the kingdom. The kingdom is like this. Every time now you see that word, remember what? This is the fulfilling of the mandate of Genesis 1.28. Allow your mind to be collecting all that that Old Testament, everything of that Old Testament for thousands of years has been moving toward and prophesying. Now you see the fulfillment right in your eyes with the birth and the ministry of this one man who is God's king upon the earth. He is now David, the David that God has promised. He promised it to Abraham in Genesis 17, 6. And kings shall come from you. And here we have it. So when we read the Old Testament, I'm sorry, the New Testament, let us read it with what? A vision of collecting everything that we know about this 
from the old and putting it into this, these terminologies in the new. So we're seeing, finally, it's here. It's fulfilled. No wonder the heavens you see burst forth. And the angel said what? Glory to God in the highest. No wonder. No wonder. God's Adam. God's image. God's king is upon the earth. And now, finally, what God had purposed in Genesis 1 and 2 is now begun to be fulfilled. And this one will not sin and lose the day. This one will keep it to the end and establish God's kingdom, and it will be consummated at the end of the age. So remember, in what does that mean? In Jesus, immediately in Matthew at least, and in uh, Mark, is what is his first sermon? What's Jesus' first sermon in Matthew and Mark? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember in Matthew 6.10, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. Remember the Our Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed may your name be praised. So we first start with praise. What's Jesus' first request? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that your dominion, your rule, your majesty, your kingship, your sovereignty, who you are in yourself may become a living, controlling, absolute, comprehensive reality upon this earth. So when we pray that the next time, let's not just say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's not do it that way. Thy kingdom come. And so literally, church, we are in the middle of, we are in the flow of God fulfilling his Genesis mandate. We are part of the kingdom of God. We are the living reality and the living proof that God's kingdom is on the earth and is moving forward to its consummation. It is inaugurated when Jesus the king is here. We're part of that. So let's not just think of the kingdom of God as something whatever, but let's think of it in much more expansive and glorious terms. That we are part of what God is doing to fulfill His purpose of manifesting His sovereign glory and majesty. Every one of us each one of us personally and corporately are an expression and are to be an expression of the most amazing God being truth of all time. What a glory this is, amen? What a glory this is. If anything should keep us from sinning, what? This should. In Matthew 28, 18, you remember in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is ready to leave? And what does he say in Matthew 20, 18? He says, all what authority has been given unto me, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all things that I have what? Instructed you. Remember that? And behold, I'm going to be with you until the consummation of the age. The inauguration of the kingdom is given to them. 
What does that mean? When Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 says all authority, he's thinking of and he's coming out of God's mandate to Adam in Genesis 1, 28. Adam was supposed to have this authority and this ability to have the world become the dominion of God as Adam obeyed. And when he sinned, of course, that was lost. And all through the ages, this is typified. It's coming one day. It's coming one day. It's going to look like this. It's going to look like that. It's going to have some of these kinds of things. And you're going to see some of these features. But it continues to fail because of sin. But it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, but sin still. But it's coming. It's coming. God is coming. He's promised. He's fulfilling it. He's, uh, you know, he's faithful. But it's coming. It's coming. Just wait. It's coming, coming. And boom, here he is. The king is here. And when the king rises from the dead and before he ascends into heaven, he tells his disciple, this is it. I've accomplished it. I've done the work of the Davidic king by preparing everything. I'm going into heaven. And from the heaven, I will be exalted and crowned king of kings and lord of lords. And on that point, I will send my spirit. And as a ruling, reigning Adam, as a risen Adam, as a man, as a man, God's universe and cosmos will become one. Heaven and earth will become one, and God's rule will be demonstrated and exercised throughout all the creation by a man and in man and through man. And he says, therefore, go into all the world. I have been given all authority. How has he been given it? The Son of God has always had authority, but he laid it down, you remember, being come incarnate. And he then is given that authority back by God the Father. But this time he's given that authority not only as the Son of God, but as a risen man, the obedient Son of God, the image of God, having fulfilled the purposes of God completely. Now God confers on this one man all authority to rule in God's name. Can you say amen? That's what's going on here. So when we see this in the Bible, let's not just read, oh, all authority in heaven and earth been given to me. Therefore, and we make emphasis about being disciples. Well, there's an important thing about being disciples. But the emphasis is this, all authority in heaven and earth is in Christ. And not only in him as the son of God, but in him as the son of man. And we'll talk about Daniel number seven next week. Some of you remember Daniel, uh, the son of man, and Daniel would be thinking about that next week, so don't jump ahead of me. You see, Jesus has now fulfilled the dominion mandate. Now listen, Jesus has fulfilled the dominion mandate. Now he's commanding his disciples to do what? Go and do the same thing. But now, fulfill the dominion mandate, not by your own personal ability to obey, and it's dependent upon your own ability to obey, but do it within the context and with the dependence and with the knowledge that I have already succeeded and obeyed and have fulfilled completely God's dominion purpose and mandate so that in me, empowered by my spirit, you will fulfill this mandate. So it's no longer required of us to do it as an issue of obedience to try to get it done and hoping we can do it. But it is done by us now as we receive it by faith and walk in this mandate by faith with Christ according to the leading and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. Correct? So what Adam did not do through his obedience, Jesus has done and won the day. And I need to move along to the last one. 
And so let me quickly do the last one. I'm going to be a little late today. Please forgive me for that. What has happened to allow Jesus to give such a mandate? How could he do this? He is the seed of the woman. He's the seed of the woman. Jesus has fulfilled the prophecy, remember, 3.15 of Genesis. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. How does he do it? He does it by his obedience. Now remember this. It's obedience that destroys the ability of Satan in our lives also. You can rebuke Satan and bleed the blood of Jesus all day long you want, and it don't work. If you want Satan to flee from you, you have got to get you and me together in obedience to God's will. So you can plead and yell and scream and, and cry and bemoan all you want. God certainly can lift and, and you know, give us some respite here from these attacks. But only thing that overcomes this uh, uh, Satan's attack is our obedience. Our obedience. You see that in Revelation later on. So he's, Mark 8, 31, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. How does Jesus overcome, overcome it? He goes to the cross. His obedience, how much obedience? How much should I obey the Lord? How much should I give in? How much should I walk with this unbeliever? How much should I continue to wrestle until you're dead? So what does Philippians 2, 8 say? Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient. How far, Karen? Obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Adam wasn't even required to do that. He was required what? Just don't eat of the fruit. But because of sin, Jesus had to go to a much deeper level of obedience. What has won the day? He's obedient. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the image of God. And all of that, He's obedient. How far? To the very death, the worst death, the death on the cross. Why was it worse? It wasn't worse because he was nailed to a tree and beaten. It was worse because in that nailing to the tree and beaten, he took upon himself the full wrath of God's justice upon himself. This is what caused him to tremble in the garden and sweat blood coming down. Not because he was going to get beat up and killed but because he would face the wrath of a holy God as a sinner. Not that he sinned, but as if he was a sinner. He faced that wrath that we should face. And he absorbed every bit of it in himself so that those who are in him never have to taste or absorb any aspect of the wrath of God. That's what the cross is. As a result, Jesus broke, um, broke the dominion of Satan over God's people. Remember in Philippians 2.9, Jesus obedient to the cross. Therefore, what? Therefore God has highly exalted him. Remember, all authority has been given unto me. You remember? And has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, Yahshua, Yah. Hosea, I am salvation in a man, as a man, <clears throat> and for man. Yeshua, I am salvation in a man, as a man, and for man. He's given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Yeshua, every knee shall bow of things in the heavens, on earth, 
and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess what? That Yeshua, Christos, Jesus Christ, is Kurios, is Lord, is the same Lord of the Old Testament to the glory of God the Father. You see, he did this becoming the seed of the woman. And in that, he crushed the head of Satan. You see a picture of that in 1 Samuel 17 when David takes off the head of Goliath. And then in 18, Jonathan's heart is knit to David. David first conquers the enemy and dismembers him, taking off his head, his authority, having dominion over Goliath. And in that and as a result of that, Jonathan is able to have covenant with David. Jesus does that work of the cross, and as a result of that work of the cross, the Jonathans, the people of God, can now enter covenant with God himself through Christ. See the Old Testament for what it is. Not just a bunch of stories about some weird old people, but the story of the coming of God's redemption in his great David, the seed of the woman. So what else do we say? Hebrews 2.14, that through death Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death. Listen to this, Colossians 13-15, great. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your sin. You see, we were dead. You see that in Ephesians 1, I mean 2.1, remember. God made alive. How can dead people call upon the name of the Lord? You see, it can't happen. You can't call upon the name of the Lord because you want to. You can only be made alive and then you can say yes to Jesus. And God made alive with him. Just read Ezekiel 37. You'll see that the first 10 verses talk about a bunch of bones coming together. And he made alive in him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He first forgave us at the cross. The sins are removed. They're forgiven because of the blood. And he canceled out the record of debt, that those sins that stood against us with its legal requirements. The requirements were death, death, and destruction. But he canceled it out. And he set him aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them open to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, the picture is his heel is upon the head of the enemy. When Paul uses this terminology, he is thinking of Genesis 3.15, and you are going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's what Paul is telling us here. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Next week, let's look at some of the results of this next week. Now, I want to tell you this this morning, just for the next two weeks. We're going to take a break of two weeks in the first two weeks of October. We will not have a class of teaching for the first two weeks of October, first two Sundays of October. But we will be still, hopefully, you'll be gathering in, him, in here for prayer and ministry. So I want to just let you know, for the first two weeks of October, we'll take a break from teaching, but there will still be time for prayer and ministry in here. Uh, see you next week. We'll see you a little while in the church next week. <clears throat>